two readings this morning. The first is from Mark chapter 4, starting at verse 1 and going through to verse 34. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It, it came up, grew and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they at last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed, sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it and produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. He said to them, do you bring in a lamp lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out onto the into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. 
With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has, has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Again he said, What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet, when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, which such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them, as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. The second reading is taken from Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a temple of unclean, of people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. He said, Go and tell this people. I've turned two pages. <laughs> the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For 
As in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Oh, sorry. That's all right. We're up to six. Yeah, sorry. That's all right. Six, verse nine. Yeah. I did turn over two pages. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, That's nine. Yeah, we're there. Cool. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Just as well someone's got their mind on the job. <laughs> Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. And otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant and until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak have leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Here endeth the lesson. Morning, everyone. I'm actually quite partial to both parts of Isaiah, so thank you, uh, uh, Vicky. Uh, in case we haven't met, my name's Ben. I'm uh, one of the pastors at Grace Anglican. It's a delight to uh, be uh, bringing the Word of God to bear on us together today. Uh, let us uh, uh, let me lead us briefly in prayer, and you might want to have your Bible open to uh, our sermon passage, which is the the Mark four one. Let's pray, Heavenly Father. We thank and praise you that. You're the God who speaks and you speak to us in the power of your spirit through your word. You do so to uh, strengthen us and make us more into the likeness of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. We pray you do just that now as we consider your word in Mark's gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, here is an ancient Greek philosopher whose name is Epictetus, who clearly lived in the days where people's names sounded like a serious medical condition. Whilst I'm guessing that most people will not be familiar with Epictetus, I suspect many of us are familiar with one of his uh, more famous sayings. He's reputed to have said, you have two ears and one mouth so that you can listen twice as much as you speak. Uh, those who know me know I have a rather irreverent sense of humour and sometimes I enjoy the response that goes, well, Epictetus, you've got two legs and one brain so you should think less and go away. Of course, he does have a very important point, though, which is probably why the saying is reasonably well remembered. No doubt we've all had times where our big mouths have landed us in a spot of trouble or made us look a little bit 
foolish. Uh, no doubt we've had times where we've had that experience of someone really not talking with us so much as talking at us because they just are so concerned to get out what they want to say. It's not really interactive. The Apostle James rightly teaches that the tongue is very hard to tame and that uh, all of us ought to be quick to listen but slow to speak. But what does it actually mean to be a good listener? Not only in the sight of others, but in the sight of the one who made our mouth and our ears. And why is it important to, as Jesus says in today's passage, listen carefully to what we hear, particularly when it concerns God's revelation? And how do we listen well? What is biblical listening, if I can put it that way? Well, of course, that's what we're going to discover in today's instalment from Mark's Gospel. By way of context... If you remember from uh, last week's chapter, uh, from the crowds, the religious leaders, Jesus' family members, the, 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 the sinners, tax collectors, the demons even, from all those people, you can basically sort of distill down four generalised responses that people have to Jesus. For some, he's the latest fad. Interesting, fantastic, but people aren't really interested in what he's got to say. For some, Jesus is a liar. You remember the whole blasphemy against the Holy Spirit thing, you know, he's in league with Beelzebub, according to the Pharisees, so he's a liar. For some, he's a lunatic. Remember, his own mother and brothers are like, this guy's out of his mind, we've got to pull him out of what he's doing. But of course, for those with ears to hear properly, Jesus Christ is Lord. It's clear, it's undeniable that he fulfills the expectation, even four chapters into Mark's Gospel, of the one who was to come, the Messiah, the one that God has put in charge over Israel and of over all the world. And so in this week's encounter with yet another huge crowd, Jesus actually goes a bit on the front foot and he starts doing something to separate those who kind of have the first three approaches from those who actually see him as Lord. Jesus divides them. He, to do that, he actually speaks in, in, in this kind of uh, speaking matter called parables, so as to divide his hearers, to push the outsiders further out, and to motivate, and even through provocation, the insiders to draw more in. Uh, so I hope you've got your Bibles open at uh, Mark chapter 4, beginning verse 1, you can see the scene is set, the crowd again is so huge that Jesus gets on another floating platform, and then verse 2, he taught them many things, yes, you can see there, but by parables. Now I know that uh, some of you might have been taught once upon a time, even at Sunday school, that a parable is basically an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's something simple to explain something profound. If you have been taught that, I'm very, very sorry. You are terribly misinformed. You need to take that phrase and throw it in the bin. More than any other teaching that Jesus gives, the parables require explanation, right? That should already tell you that it's not a basic explanatory tool. The word parable comes from the old, uh, Hebrew term that means dark saying, and it's supposed to be difficult. A classic example in the Old Testament is, you know, remember when Samson gave the riddle to the Philistines? The idea is they can't crack it, right? That's what a parable is. A helpful way of thinking about a parable uh, is to think about a magnet, the old horseshoe magnet, and everyone's done this uh, once upon a time in science or whatever, you, it can really repel or attract the other one depending on its position, right? But what a magnet does, it'll push away, it'll push away unless this other one's kind of like the, the opposite way around, in which case it'll, it'll attract. Jesus speaks in order to repel the crowd such that only those who are genuinely keen, those who have ears to hear, 
will be attracted and will seek more. Those who have will want to receive more. And so beginning with the command, and it's a really big command there in verse 3, listen, he gives the famous parable of the four soils, the parable of the sower, verses 4 through 9, which I suspect most, if not all of us, will be familiar with, and which I will go through in just a moment, you know, because Jesus does. But then this is what happens afterwards, and this is the bit that people miss, and this is a bit I don't want us to miss. Look from verse 10, chapter 4, verse 10. After he's given the parable of the four soils, here's what happens. When he was alone, that's Jesus, the twelve and the others around him, so presumably some people who have hang on from the crowd, asked him about the parables. Notice they did not ask him about the parables, singular, they asked him about the parables, plural. The question is, why are you teaching in this manner? Verse 11, he told them, well, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, ever hearing, but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. Uh, of course, this is why we had the second reading, where that comes from, Isaiah chapter 6, Jesus quotes Isaiah 6 as the rationale for speaking in a way that actually repels. Uh, what was going on in Isaiah 6? Well, the context there is God had already resolved that Israel, the ten northern tribes, will be dispersed amongst the Assyrians and the two southern tribes will go into exile in Babylon. And the reason that would happen, among one reason that would happen, is so that the Messiah, the great king in the line of David, would emerge not from a great mighty nation, but he would emerge from a tiny little burnt stump of a people. And so God sent the prophet Isaiah to confirm Israel in their sinfulness because if they did actually repent, then being a gracious God, he would have to forgive them and that plan would not come to pass. So God sent Isaiah as a prophet of judgment, confirming his people in their sin. And here Jesus does the same thing. He preaches primarily not to save, but to condemn. He knows God's plan is that the same kinds of people who crowd around him now wanting to see what he's going to do are those who will eventually be the kinds of people that will say, crucify, crucify him, which of course happens at the end of the gospel. Jesus knew that God had destined for him to be, to quote elsewhere in the scriptures, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, literally a rock of offence. And that because they be left to their own disobedience, they would do the necessary work of crucifying the Son of God so that those who were destined to become God's children would actually have their means of salvation established. So, for these 12 and for the others who are pursuing Jesus for the right reasons, after explaining the reason for speaking in parables generally, in a, you know, after explaining why he's dividing the crowd, of course, then Jesus goes on to give the secret meaning of one of the parables that Mark recorded, i.e. the parable of the sower. So point two on your outline, the explanation is given to the insiders. And it turns out that the explanation of this particular parable, the parable of the sower, is to make the very same point that Jesus was just making. Uh, that there are those 
who are interested in Jesus, yes, but aren't actually interested in the kingdom. There are those who might want to come along for the ride, yes, but who aren't interested in actually seeking the kingdom of heaven, as would be demonstrated by serious and humble listening and, and seeking after him. And so, after provoking even the insiders, I think, in verse 13, presumably with the aim that they would listen even more carefully, Jesus explains the parable of the sower. Read with me from verse 14. The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Uh, If you ever hear someone say, you know, the thing I really love about Jesus is he's... So clever, such a good storyteller, how he uses the parables and stuff. It's so clever how he comes up with interesting ways of explaining. Yeah, if you hear that, you can be pretty sure that the bird has snatched away the seed. It's not the manner of what Jesus says, it's the content that actually matters. And a really good way of hearing but never perceiving is just commenting on, you know, the style. Someone, and I've met someone, uh, met a couple of people like this, might actually think to themselves, look, I just cannot accept that all people are inherently evil, such that we need Jesus to suffer God's wrath in the place of unworthy sinners like us so that we might find forgiveness. I just cannot accept that that's the way we really are. And Satan, of course, loves convincing people that we are more righteous than what the Scriptures plainly say we naturally are. And hence again, the word gets snatched away. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word, verse 16, and at once receive it with joy. But, verse 17, since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, then they quickly fall away. Uh, I'm really thankful that this kind of soil was made really obvious to me in my own conversion. A lot of you know I became a follower of Jesus when I was 19 years old. Uh, The guy that explained the gospel to me using two ways to to live, which is a wonderful gospel track, uh, was my uncle who had been kicked out of my family because as a Jewish family, people who become Christian are bad news. And uh, he sat me down and he explained the, the good news of Jesus. Yes, there is a loving God who made the world. All people have rebelled against him. That results in death and judgment, but God loves us. He sent Jesus to take the death that we deserve. God raised Jesus to show he really is the Lord. So you've got to make a choice. And I knew that everything he said was right. And I said, well, I want to change. I want to become a follower of Jesus. To which his response was, no, no. And he folded up the paper and he gave it to me. And he said, I want you to sleep on this. I want you to read over the verses again. Let it sit for a while. Think about it. A few weeks later, when I had become a follower of Jesus, I said to him, why did you do that? Didn't you, isn't the whole point of telling me the gospel that you want me to do what God wants me to do, which you become a follower of Jesus? And he said two things. Number one, if you're going to become a Christian, you become a Christian no matter what. It's only ever God's sovereignty and election. You'd, you'd be saved. But number two, you've got to be really careful because people can make sort of hyped up, spur of the moment decisions and commitments and not have thought seriously about the fact that To follow Jesus means you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. This is an all of life, 100% in commitment, and you've got to count the cost. And that was really helpful, and I suspect some of us would know the pain of seeing someone come along, actually get, get the gospel, become a follower of Jesus, and then within a few weeks or even a few years, nah, too hard, too difficult, 
They've got no root. They realise what it actually means to deny self, take up cross, and they don't want to be in there. And then comes the one that hits the church in our context, the Western world, hardest of all, verse 18. Read from verse 18. Still others, like seed sown among the thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. The worries of this life refers to this age and this world rather than the age to come in the new creation. We can so easily get preoccupied with making sure we're comfortable and secure in the here and now, such that we don't have any time or energy left for being comfortable and secure in the there and then. The deceitfulness of wealth refers to the idea that wealth guarantees comfort and security, which of course is a big fat lie. It seldom does either of those things. The people in the modern Western world, us, have more wealth, better medical care than any other people throughout all human history. And yet we are more depressed, more anxious, have a far higher suicide rate than people in the third world countries right now. And as the church is increasingly infiltrated by our rich materialistic culture, so the deceitfulness of wealth chokes out the fruitfulness The desire for other things can mean the desire for even good other things, but nonetheless things that get in the way of fruitful Christian growth because they attract our desire more than our desire to live in accordance with the priorities that Jesus makes clear in his word. What a devastatingly sad reality that 30 years ago, in order to have an average of 100 people in your congregation of a Sunday in Australia, you needed 120 people on your books because an average of 20 people will be sick or on holidays or whatever. Now, to have an average of 100 people in your church of a Sunday, you need 200 people on your books because the desire for other things chokes out the fruitfulness. What a devastatingly sad reality to think that once upon a time, a long time ago, Christians protested against Sunday trading. But that now, one of the big reasons people neglect Sunday fellowship is sport. The desire for other things just chokes out the fruitfulness. Mind you, we didn't protest hard enough against Sunday trading or no-fault divorce or abortion legislation so that when it came to protesting against a homosexual marriage, we were already far on the back foot. And now with euthanasia and the move to abandon SRE in public schools where often too busy making a living, paying off the mortgage, planning the next overseas holiday, driving the kids to every conceivable kind of extracurricular activity to protest too much at all. Plus we keep, and this is a problem in evangelical circles in our neck of the woods, we keep buying into the lie that somehow it's noble not to have any political involvement and just get on with preaching the gospel. Even though the very gospel we preach compels us to love our neighbour as ourself, which frankly necessitates at least a level of political thought and involvement. What a devastatingly sad reality that it's really easy to find Christians posting on social media far more about their fitness achievements than their spiritual battles. 
Far more about the things we eat, drink and wear, which are the very things the pagans chase after, than anything pertaining to the kingdom of God, which we're supposedly seeking first. Satan's gospel, the gospel the devil loves to teach is, you can say yes to Jesus and yes to the world. What a beautiful gospel the dark Lord has given to us. Yes to Jesus, yes to the world. So comfortable, so easy. The worries of this life are choking out the fruitfulness. What a devastatingly sad reality that one of the biggest ways we see young people getting the life choked out of them is by the dating of, and sadly, even the marrying to, non-Christians. The fact that this is a big issue, and I know it is because I'm a youth pastor, already shows how far behind we really are. If you are a parent of even a very young child, can I encourage you now to make sure that it's understood that in obedience to Jesus, the kinds of people that a Christian will marry will be another Christian. It is actually sinful in the Scriptures to marry yourself to someone who is not in the Lord. During my time at Moore Theological College, there were some students who had given up lucrative careers in order to go into full-time vocational ministry, for which the pushback they got came not only from their pagan friends, but just as much or even more so from their Christian family members. The deceitfulness of wealth is choking out the fruitfulness. Now, for many people, Jesus' magnet here will repel on account of its intolerant, un-PC, uninclusive, all-or-nothing kind of tone. Jesus was actually very good at turning people away. Yet for some, it will attract. It will provoke you to want to latch onto something more, to want to be different to those three useless soils. And I hope that is you. Because that means you're either on, or frankly, are very soon to be on, the good soil. Read with me from verse 20. Other seed, like seeds sown, others, sorry, like those sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. You can tell a good soil disciple by how fruitful they are, by how committed they are to hearing and obeying the word of God. Now, I know there's a great danger in pointing out this simple truth from Scriptures. And if the, the danger is if you're anything like me, you hear the word, you know you're a legit or good disciple because of how fruitful you are. And the first thought you have is, wait a minute, what about all the stuff I'm useless at, right? What about the fact I'm kind of rubbish at praying or reading the Scriptures or you know, like I get choked up when it comes to evangelism or I'm not really super attentive? Okay, bear with me though. Part of gospel fruitfulness cannot help but involve the admission that we are unworthy sinners who are saved by grace alone, who are transformed by the work of God. Part of the fruit of being a disciple of Jesus is the recognition that this side of heaven, I'm not going to get everything right. Over time... The fact that you become increasingly disappointed with your sin and failure is in and of itself producing of fruit. 
At the same time, it's equally true to say, yes, these things are vitally important. How much you're willing to sacrifice in order to see others get planted on the good soil is a measure of you being one of Jesus' disciples. But also by how thankful we are that God is the planter and the grower. And that it therefore doesn't ultimately rely on me and my own efforts or religious activities. That is also part of the fruit. We admit that in and of ourselves we cannot be on the good soil. We don't brush over or deny the fact that we fail at all sorts of things. We recognise, and as a matter of fact, we are safe to recognise our many failings, precisely because God is the God full of grace and mercy. We recognise that the pull of the things of this world often get us, often get me. But we don't stay there. We keep listening to the words of God our Saviour. We keep repenting of our sins in the wonderful knowledge that he has done absolutely everything to ensure that you and I might say with conviction there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Ironically, it's the ones planted on the good soil who find genuine comfort and security. We don't always get happiness in this world, but we get joy. Regardless of our wealth and prosperity we get contentment. We might lose friends and family who are enslaved to the trimmings and trappings of, of this perishing world, but we gain brothers and sisters and mothers in Christ and in the age to come eternal life. And so Jesus encourages us to be the kind of people who desperately and unashamedly cling to his word, to search intently for the meaning of his teaching. Because for all the light that Jesus' teaching gives... It's useless for the person who keeps their eyes shut, who doesn't make the effort to open them. Uh, that's what Jesus kind of gets over the next verse. Look at me, verse 21, he said to them, Do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed instead? Don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. And what does it mean to hear Jesus properly then? Well, verse 24, it means to consider carefully what you hear, he continued, because with the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken away from them. To put it simply, if you go hard, if you grab on to the teacher and chase after him, even though the crowd have all dispersed, and you say, please explain it to me, then you're one who has and you will be given more. But if you're with the crowd and you say, hey, that was a spectacular miracle, I'll come back tomorrow and watch him do another one, then even what you do have will be taken away. The light is shining, but you've chucked a bowl over it. This is why Mark, in the final section of our passage for today, includes a bit more teaching that Jesus gave to the crowds that warns them that unless they actively seek the kingdom which you do by careful listening, then it can just so easily be missed. From verse 26, Jesus gives another parable of a sower who has no idea how the, the planted seed turns into a crop and then gets harvested, other than that it happens. In fact, there's such a great difference in the end of that process compared to the beginning. In the beginning, you're chucking a tiny little thing in the ground. the end, you've got all this stuff that you can turn into food and you can put a sickle to it, right? But it grows slowly, if you didn't know what was happening, you might not even realise. And then, 
he gives the same lesson again in an even more pointed parable. Read with me from verse 30. Verse 30 again, he said, what should we say the kingdom of God is like or what parable should we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth, yet when planted it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. The smallest of all seeds, the most easy one to miss and consider insignificant. You don't look carefully, it'll just pass you by, you'll easily miss it. The growth is slow and gradual, so unless you actually know it's happening, you might not even realise until it's too late. Good listening means putting in effort to understand the Word of God. It involves letting God's Word change and shape your feelings and expectations rather than letting your feelings and expectations shape God's Word. It means ordering your life and priorities around God's kingdom rather than ordering God's kingdom around your life and priorities. If I had to put it in a simple sentence, this body of teaching from Mark thus far, I think I'd say something like genuine members of Jesus' kingdom will humbly and painstakingly, had to get the positive and the negative, humbly and painstakingly cherish what God has revealed in his word. That'll be the kind of thing you run after. That'll be the kind of thing that you kind of go, this is what I want to pay attention to. It matters more to me than X, Y, and Z. And having said that, of course, I immediately then need to say by way of implication uh, that it could well be the case, I don't know everyone here, that you're someone who's still on the seeking uh, of of the kingdom. You're still one who's in the crowd and you're wondering whether you want to chase after the teacher or not. Uh, To put it in, in concrete terms, you're not yet a follower of Jesus, but you're here because you're considering being a follower of Jesus. First of all, if that's you, that is... I praise God for that. It's absolutely wonderful. You come to the right place. We believe that Jesus Christ is Lord here and we teach from his word here. This is the right place to find out about it. But there is a possibility that we have a too open mind. You see, the idea that you should have an open mind when you're investigating something is really right and good. Have an open mind when you come to the scriptures, right? See if this Jesus makes sense. But don't get caught in the trap of always having an open mind. You see, the reason for having an open mind is so that eventually it'll find something to close on and go, yep, I'm in. If it never happens and your mind just stays open, sooner or later your brain falls out and you're just only ever always with an open mind and you never grasp anything. Seek, yes, but seek in order to find. If you know already that Jesus Christ is Lord, that you know that your only right standing before God comes through faith in Jesus as Lord and Saviour, don't delay turn and put your faith in him. Uh, For us as a church, and I expect this is most, if if not possibly even all of us, it's also important to find, yes, come to know Jesus Lord, and therefore to continue to seek. What on earth do I mean by that? Well, those who have clung to Jesus are those who recognise that this side of uh, the new creation, we constantly need reshaping and reforming to live in accordance with his word and his priorities. We have taken up the cross, but what does it mean to follow him? We've got to keep learning to deny ourselves. And the way you do that is by continuing to humbly and painstakingly cherish what God has revealed in his word. Uh, 
Uh, I've found that over time as a follower of Jesus, the more I learn of his word, the more I, I, I discover of two things. One, that my sin is, is usually worse than what I thought it was before. Right? You actually grow in awareness of your sin. Now, if I only looked at that, the longer and longer I'm being a follower of Jesus, the more depressed I'd get. And there's actually a condition called spiritual depression, which is where people, as followers of Jesus, realize more and more their depravity. But that's because they're not looking at the other thing as well that's equally important, which is that God, in his infinite holiness and goodness and perfection, has actually made it thoroughly possible and even safe for you to acknowledge that failing. Why? Because it's only ever by God and his incredible grace that you stand perfectly righteous and justified before him. Now, that only ever always happens as you continue looking at what's at the centre of our faith, namely the cross, uh, faith, namely the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you've got to make sure you don't get too far one way or the other way. I love this little diagram because the cross just gets bigger and bigger. This is what happens as you become a follower of Jesus. The more you keep growing in him, the more essential and important you realise that he is. And the worse your sin is and the more wonderful God is at the same time. That's kind of a good description of the process of growth. For something concrete in terms of, well, how do you keep seeking more of the word of God? How do you keep listening better? I'm going to give just one tiny simple thing that I think is really really helpful that's really easy to remember whenever you read the scriptures whether it be a big lot or a little lot try and pray in accordance with the content of the scriptures right what was that second bible reading hand Isaiah 6 right Isaiah 6 uh, the year Isaiah died I saw the Lord before me high and exalted the, the train of his temple uh, robe filled the temple and there were seraphim covering their faces and things and then Isaiah said woe to me I'm a man of unclean lips I dwell among a people of unclean lips you know I'm seeing God I'm going to die but then the seraph takes the hot coal from the altar puts it on his mouth and says here your guilt's been taken away look by sacrifice you can be cleansed and Isaiah's like sweet I can be in the presence of the living God because of something God has done for me <laughs> what a gospel and then God's going hmm I've got to confirm these people in their judgment so that the, the Messiah will come from a really small seed. Who am I going to send? Gee, I wonder. And I was like, oh, well, pick me. Here I am. And uh, Isaiah's all excited. You know, I'm going to go do something for God. And God says, yeah, go and preach a message of judgment to them. And he's like, ooh. And so his obvious question, well, how long, oh Lord, <laughs> like this seems, yep, until they're utterly devastated and they're basically a thing in a stump. Ooh, maybe should have been careful what I asked for. There, I've read Isaiah 6. What will I pray? Already I can think of ways that what I've listened to can inform what I say to God. Well, dear God, thank you that I, a man of unclean lips, have yet been cleansed because of your work, your work of Jesus. The very fact that I'm thanking God for something that's in there is already aiding my listening to what he... That, 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 that's, that's humble, painstaking, cherishing listening of the Word of God. I might even say more, God, please use me, even if it's really uncomfortable what you will have me do, like it was for Isaiah. You can see, just reading the Bible, yes, how can you be a really good listener? Pray, give back to God, so to speak, what you have heard. It's really simple, it's really memorable. Have a go at it this week. I'm going to conclude in prayer now, and if you've got more questions, comments, you can uh, speak to me afterwards. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's done absolutely everything required to plant us on good soil, and that therefore we can rightly expect that we will grow and be fruitful. 
Father, we recognise that we have so many failings so easily, but we thank you that even there, that's part of the growth in fruitfulness, the recognition of our sin, and we can do that recognition in safety, in the knowledge that Jesus Christ has done absolutely everything to pay for all our sins, past, present and future. We pray for those known to us who currently are just with the crowds, that by the power of your spirit at work in them, you might draw them to plant them on that good soil, that they might, like us, come to humbly and painstakingly cherish the word of God. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.